0: I hope you'll forgive me if I sound a little scratchy today. I've got a sore throat. Today we're reading from Genesis 18, verses 17 to 19, and then Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. These are God's words. And Yahweh said, Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him. To the end that he may command his sons and his household after him, that they may keep the way of Yahweh, to do righteousness and justice, to the end that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Now Ephesians 5. Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the congregation, being himself the savior of the body. But as the congregation is subject to Christ, so let the wives also be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the congregation and gave himself up for it, that he might hallow it, having cleansed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the congregation to himself, a glorious congregation, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish." Even so ought husbands also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his own wife loveth himself. For no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as Christ also the congregation, because we are members of his body. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I speak in regard of Christ and of the congregation. Nevertheless, do ye also, each one, love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see that she fear her husband. Let us give thanks to God. Father, thank you for the gift of your scriptures. Please send your spirit now to help me to rightly divide them and distribute the the words that you have given to us, to each one of us, and plant them in our hearts and help them to bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at the importance of the household and the calling of mankind, and the work of dominion that God calls us to, our vocation. In the last couple of weeks, we have seen some of the pitfalls that we face because of sin and the curse, both in terms of the problems that women have obeying their calling as wives and the problems that men have obeying their calling as husbands. Today, I want to build on that foundation by turning to a more positive or constructive vision of how men can be good rulers of their households. I say rulers rather than leaders, not because there's anything wrong with the idea of leadership per se, because obviously a husband must lead his wife and his family. That is, he must know where they are going and he must be out in front showing the way. But the Bible does not primarily speak in terms of leaders and guiding, but in terms of heads and ruling. Christ is not the leader of the church in Scripture, but the head of the church. And he is not said to guide the church so much as to command the church. And since the husband-wife relationship is made to image the relationship between Christ and church, it is no surprise that we see similar kind of language being used in paradigm cases in scripture like Adam ruling over Eve in Genesis 3:16 3, uh, which we looked at last week and Abraham in our passage today where God describes the vocation to which he has called him for I have known him to the end that he may command his sons and his household after him notice also the end that God describes for Abraham's rulership of his family his command of his household The reason that he does this, that he rules them, the goal towards which this command is aimed is that they may keep the way of Yahweh to do righteousness and justice to the end that Yahweh may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. This is not, of course, a foregone conclusion. It is a foregone conclusion that men will rule, but it is not a foregone conclusion as to how they will rule. If it were, God would not have had to command Abraham. If men are unrighteous, their ruling will bring evil to their families and to the world. A bad ruler is a head that confuses and devours and divides the strength of its body. But a good ruler is a head that directs and nourishes and knits together its body, as Colossians 2.19 says of Christ, the head from whom all the body being supplied and knit together through the joints and bands increaseth with the increase of God. This is the model that we are explicitly called to imitate, the pattern that we are commanded to participate in and indeed are created to participate in. God gives us this duty and all the duties that come with it to rule our houses so that they may do righteousness and justice and so that we may have brought upon us that God may bring upon us all the promises of the new covenant that are gathered up into Christ. In the Tenant family, we all know Second 2 Chronicles 27.6. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before Yahweh, his God. God wants to make us mighty. And so he calls us to good rulership of our houses so that he may make us mighty. He calls us to gladly fulfill this duty of rulership just as Christ fulfilled this duty in his own house, the church. And we are tempted by the world and the flesh and the devil to rule badly, either abdicating the duties that God calls us to, not fulfilling them, or exceeding the limits of those duties and becoming domineering. And so we are inclined by the fall into both of these ditches at various times. But God calls us to the narrow path of commanding our houses so that they may keep his ways for their good and ultimately for his glory. So what practical guidance does Scripture give us in doing this? Obviously, I couldn't possibly exhaust that topic today, but as I have been reflecting on where we're at and what we have covered and the challenges that we all face, there are two related ideas that stood out to me as being especially important. These ideas are self-rule and command-presence. Let me start with self-rule, and you will see how command presence naturally works out from this. Self-rule essentially means that you cannot rule a family if you will not rule yourself. And Usually, we are ruling ourselves considerably worse than we think we are because we're fudging the rules, and we're making up our own rules, and it's very easy for us to do this and to slip into a mindset where ruling ourselves really just means doing whatever we want. But that is not what self-rule is. That is the kind of thing the sluggard does, that is being ruled by your flesh. Fools do whatever they want, Isaiah twenty-nine, fifteen to 16 Woe unto them that hide deep their counsel from Yahweh and whose works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us and who knoweth us? Turn things upside down. Shall the potter be esteemed as clay that the thing made should say of him that made it, He made me not? Or the thing formed say of him that formed it, He hath no understanding? In other words, you cannot rule over yourself if God does not rule over you. You cannot assert your own will without submitting to God's will. It is rulership all the way up, as well as all the way down. If we would rule those beneath us, we must be ruled by him who is above us, which means that we must rule ourselves as he directs and not as we prefer. Spiritual maturity, in other words, is downstream from the lordship of Christ. Remember, we are made to exercise dominion in his image, or as his image, if you want to translate it that way, can be. If we will not submit to God's rule, to God's design for man, we cannot image him. And so we cannot properly exercise dominion, because that's what dominion is, is imaging God. We cannot properly rule on his behalf if we're not imaging him. And if we can't even rule ourselves, how will we be able to rule a wife or children? And if We cannot rule a wife or children. We certainly should not be trusted to rule more than that. He who is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. And so we read in 1 Timothy 3, 2-5, that the overseer of a church must be without reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, orderly, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not contentious, no lover of money, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. And if a man knoweth not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the congregation of God? These qualifications for an overseer are marks of maturity. They are the qualities of a man who has learned through practice to rule himself well. Let's briefly look at the four perhaps most instructive qualities that Paul mentions. Firstly, an overseer is temperate. You know what temperate means? It means that he exercises moderation and self-restraint. He is not given to swings of mood or wild changes in direction. If you put him in front of a table of delicious food, for instance, he will not pig out on it until it is all gone And he is completely stuffed. He will restrain himself, not just for his own good, so he does not become a huge fatty, but also for the good of the other people who want some. He has learned the import of Proverbs 23, 1 to 2. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently him that is before thee, and put a knife to thy throat, if thou be a man given to appetite. Secondly, an overseer is sensible, meaning that he understands the world as it is, and he acts accordingly, rather than wanting reality to match his own personal expectations or preferences and acting foolishly or idealistically, so he is prudent. Thirdly, he is orderly, not leaving everything a mess. There is a reason, I think, that Jordan Peterson has become wildly famous telling young men something as stupidly simple as to tidy their rooms. Ordering your world is the first step in self-rule outside of ordering your own appetites and emotions. And then fourthly, the overseer is also gentle and not contentious. He desires peace, and his temperance shows through in how he deals with those who are unruly or offensive or wayward. He doesn't use all the force that he is able to bring to bear. He only uses enough to get the job done. He is controlled. He isn't eager or hasty to have to discipline anyone, let alone use physical force. And that doesn't mean that he won't, for we know that a man who withholds the rod from his son hates his son. But he doesn't go around as itching for a fight. Man, I wish I I wish my son would do something wicked so I could beat him. He is not hot-headed. Now, you younger men know how this works. These are the marks of maturity because they are qualities that don't come naturally to young men. Young men are competitive and aggressive, and in our flesh, we are also prone to pride and anxiety and insecurity. Every little offense, whether perceived or real, makes us want to respond disproportionately, often with anger or even violence. Every little crisis that threatens our equilibrium Makes us unstable. We blow everything out of proportion. We lose our cool. The car won't start. Ah, freak out! Because we're going to be late. It's like we take God's providence as a personal attack because it inconveniences us and messes with how we had intended for things to go. And then someone cuts us off in traffic after we get the car started and we're already late and we're ready to chase that guy down and drag him out of his car and give him a beating. You know that people kill each other in road rage incidents? They do. It's always men. That is how we are in the flesh. But for the grace of God, that is how we all would be, would we not? Thinking that the smallest inconvenience is a cause for freaking out And the smallest dent in our honor is caused to kill someone. Our fleshly responses to feeling our control of the world threatened is to lose control of ourselves with anxiety and anger. Now, an excellent antidote to this is spending time with the Lord Jesus in the Gospels, spend time reflecting on how remarkable an example He sets for us. Can you think of any occasion when Jesus was provoked into doing or saying something by anyone? I don't mean that he was completely unresponsive. Obviously, he responded to people all the time and often quite forcefully. He was not unresponsive, but he was unflappable. Look at Matthew 21. When he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one question, which if ye tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say unto us, Why then did ye not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all hold John as a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We know not. He also said unto them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Think of the absolute unshakable frame it would have taken to do this. Jesus is cornered by a contingent of the most senior religious and civil leaders of Jerusalem who challenge his authority to teach in the center of the religion, the temple. It's really difficult for us to get a feel for what this would be like today. But let me give it a, a little bit of a go. Jesus is about Mark's age. So imagine that Mark is out witnessing on Saturday and a bunch of pastors from the biggest churches in New Zealand come up to him, with the police commissioner and the mayor of Rotorua, and they demand to know what he is doing and who said that he could do it. Now, I want you all to know that I have great respect for Mark, but I think we can all agree that he would feel pretty threatened. And I doubt that any one of us in such a situation would have the presence of mind to even think about a clever trap to turn the challenge around on their own head, let alone have the nerve to use that trap. Every single one of us in a situation like that would feel extremely intimidated. And men, when they are intimidated, tend to try to overcompensate by getting aggressive, by going all macho. Or, on the other hand, they might just give up and roll over and show their belly. It's a fight or flight. We would all find it very hard to be temperate in a situation like that. We would find it very hard to properly order our thoughts and especially our words because we all find it hard to live by faith and not by sight have you ever noticed that when things start getting stressful you lose the ability to form complete sentences properly we see the flesh uh, that we see the threat in front of us and we want to respond in the flesh our flesh does not remember that the lord watches from the heavens and our faith is weak to remember that we answer to him and not men and that he is quite capable of sending a legion of angels to protect us if we need it we therefore tend to respond to any sort of crisis as if god were not with us rather than as if he were or really worse as if god were against us rather than as if he were for us but jesus is not like that and every single time he interacts with someone you can see this he is a man of cool spirit Proverbs 17, says, He that spareth his words hath knowledge, and he that is of a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Just being in the presence of Jesus told you that he was in command, in command of himself, and of course, ultimately, in command of everyone. We read this in Mark 1, 22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as having authority and not as the scribes. Now, admittedly, we will never achieve the command presence of Jesus because we are not God incarnate. We are not in that kind of command. And not even when we are perfected in glory will we have everything he has or the authority that he has. We will not become God. We only become partakers of the divine nature, as Peter tells us. So what if we, in our flesh, in our weakness, in our sin, what if we cannot think of anything wise to say in the heat of the moment? Well, Proverbs 17 goes on, it tells us we don't even have to say anything. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. When he shutteth his lips, he is deemed as prudent. In the same way, Proverbs 10, 19 tells us, In the multitude of words they wanteth not transgression, but he that re- restraineth his lips doeth wisely. James also tells us that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. This tells us that if we can be temperate in our speech, if we are in control of our tongues, we are on the way to becoming the kinds of men who can rule themselves and therefore rule their households. But if we cannot, if we are not in command of our words, we are in trouble. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Our ability to temper and restrain our speech is the key thing that signals our ability to rule our spirits. It is what tells other people whether we are emotionally stable or emotionally unstable, whether we are steady and calm or volatile and unpredictable, whether we are dependable because we are predictable, whether we are unreliable because we are erratic People want to know whether we are solid pillars inside or turbulent waters. No one wants to deal with a man who might explode at a small provocation. And neither does anyone want to face a man when you can't tell whether he's going to lose it or not. The only thing worse than being consistently volatile is being inconsistently volatile. Such men are dangerous, and I don't mean dangerous in a good way. Every man should be willing and able to apply sufficient force to a situation should the need arise. Every man should be willing and able to put down evil. Every man should be dangerous enough to make those around him feel safe. But men who cannot rule their spirits are the opposite. They make everyone unsafe because they can't be trusted to only get dangerous when the situation actually requires it and put their force into the right thing. So a man to rule well must be temperate, not temperamental. Think of how you guys respond to other men. If you know that a man is not easily ruffled, that he is composed and self-possessed, do you not respect him? Do you not want to work with him or even for him? But if you know the opposite, if you know that he is the opposite of that, do you not want to avoid him? And above all, you do not want to be put under him. Now think of how much worse it is for a woman who must submit to her husband. A woman who must submit to a man who is not self-ruled. I I don't think of this in terms of men who beat their wives, although obviously that is an extreme version of this, but just think in terms of a woman who is married to a man who can't be trusted to keep his cool when he is challenged or upset. Your emotional stability is the choke point for the stability and the growth of your household. I don't mean that it's the only thing that matters. I mean that it is the key thing that you yourself have control over. A temperate and orderly man produces a fruitful and orderly household. A temperamental and chaotic man produces an unfruitful and chaotic household. Think of it in terms of the sea. Luke 8, as they sailed, he fell asleep. And they came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filling with water, and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish! And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? We must be able to rebuke the wind and the raging of the water in our own souls, if we are to have command presence over the seas of life in our household. We must be able to say to our flesh, where is your faith? We must have a calm spirit that is like a quiet sea, that is not easily stirred up into a storm. A man with command presence is a quiet man. It sounds a bit odd to us, and especially, I think, in the patriarchy movement, we tend to think of quietness as a feminine virtue, but Scripture applies quietness to men also. There is a masculine form of the virtue of quietness. The NASB says, in Proverbs 29, If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A man who lacks self-control is loud, in other words. He rages one moment and laughs the next, and he is a slave to his emotions and his impulses, and the pressure builds up on him, and he has to let it out. He doesn't have the strength to contain it. Now, here is an interesting connection with vocations in terms of jobs. Being quiet as a man is also associated with being focused on your work and being content with your place in the world. First Thessalonians 4, We exhort you, brothers, that ye abound more and more, and that ye study to be quiet, and to do your own business, and to work with your hands, even as we charged you, that ye may walk becomingly toward them that are without, and may have need of nothing. And Paul repeats this charge in his second letter to the Thessalonians as well. For we hear of some that walk among you disorderly, that work not at all, but are busybodies. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. You see the connection between disorderliness and lack of quiet on the one hand, and between quietness and orderly productivity on the other. This is a repeated theme in Paul's writings, as he also instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. I exhort therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in high places, that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and gravity. A quiet man is a man of gravitas. Quietness and the ability to mind your affairs are important related concepts in the Christian life, and they are integral to ruling ourselves well as good stewards of what God has given us. Being loud, by contrast, is antithetical to the Christian life. The loud man meddles in the affairs of others. He isn't content with his own position. He doesn't do the work God has given him to do. And such loudness in men tends to manifest also in belligerence. We know what loud men are like. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy about elders says they must not be prone to violence. Notice also that he connects this to being addicted to wine. The stereotype of the man who goes to a bar to get drunk and gets into bar fights and then comes home and beats his wife is not without basis. That is a loud man. Now, as always, there is a ditch on both sides of the road. To be emotionally stable, to be cool of spirit, to be a quiet and self-ruled man does not mean that you are a silent man. It does not mean that you are a cold or distant man. Being temperate does not mean being checked out. It doesn't mean that you detach so hard that nothing matters to you anymore. You're not apathetic. A man must be capable of remaining emotionally involved with life, and especially with his wife and his children, without becoming emotionally caught up or entangled He must be capable of remaining emotionally apart while not becoming emotionally detached. Command presence means that you are present. There is no such thing as command absence. Your family will never grow beyond your ability to stay plugged into it while still keeping a cool head. Your household really cannot flourish without an emotionally stable husband and father. So controlling your emotions is critical to the health of your house. This is especially challenging because the people who are closest to us are the ones who know best of all how to push every button that we have. People are sometimes very impressed by how slow to anger I am when someone says something mean about me on the internet, but they are brought back down to earth when they see how much more easily provoked I am by my own children. It is not that hard to keep an even keel when someone I don't care that much about or isn't that close to me tries to rock my boat. But if you'll permit me to mip my metaphors, it is not that easy to keep my cool when someone very close to me does something that reflects back at me the way that I myself act in a way that fries my bacon. This can be your kids who are like little mirror images of you and will always show you things about yourself that you hate. Or it can be your wife or your husband for that matter because they know you the best of anyone and can always show you exactly what you hate in yourself and not only that but do it in a way that they know is calculated to get under your skin. We're all inclined to anger and anxiety. Men and women, young and old, but men react to difficult situations with aggression in a way that women don't. And so scripture warns us in 1 Timothy 2, I desire, therefore, that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without wrath and disputing. Think of what I said about how we think about volatile men compared to stable ones, how we want to work with and under men who rule their spirits well, but we want to avoid the ones who are prone to blow up or freak out. One kind of man inspires confidence. The other kind does not. And this is true not just for other men, but for women also. A man who inspires confidence in other men will also inspire confidence in his wife. In fact, women often look to other men to gauge how they should think about their husbands or about men that they are considering marrying. Women want to marry men who have the confidence and respect of other men. But angry and anxious men do not inspire confidence. Angry, anxious husbands ruin the confidence of their wives. Their ability or their inability to rule their own emotions causes them to be unable to rule their wives. Because would you willingly and wholeheartedly give yourself to the rulership of an unstable man? I wouldn't. So why would your wife, who is much more vulnerable than you are, Yes, God says that she must submit. That is something that she has to deal with. But psychologically, think it through. A wife would rightly fear to be under such a man. And that is not the kind of fear that Paul is speaking of in our passage in 1 Timothy today. He is talking about an analogy to the fear of the Lord. Just as we should all fear the Lord who is slow to anger and abounding in loyal love. So a wife should fear her husband who is to her as Christ is to the church. But a husband who is quick to anger and stingy with his love inspires an entirely different kind of fear. Much more like the fear that the natural man has of the devil. In the same way, angry or anxious fathers cannot inspire confidence in their children. Leadership, rulership is very much about inspiration, not just about command. It is not raw acts of verbal command, but the ability to inspire people to follow your example. So an unstable man, his children will fear him as a devil rather than as a stand-in for God. Angry fathers produce angry children. Ephesians 6.4 reminds us, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but nurture them in the discipleship and instruction of the Lord. And Paul contrasts provoking our children to anger, with nourishing them, feeding them, in the enculturation of the Lord, the Paideia and newtheia, this is purposeful. James 1:20 speaks of how the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. An angry man cannot feed his children with the discipleship and instruction of the law, because he himself is not in it. A pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. And so fathers reproduce themselves in their children. And angry, anxious fathers will produce angry, anxious children. Men, for the sake of our wives and our children, we must embody Proverbs 16.32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. If we react to every slight, to every upset, we are weak and insecure. Men made strong and secure by the grace of God are not easily offended men. They are not easily upset. They don't hasten to vent their spirit or race to defend themselves. A man who rules his own spirit well will give his wife and his children the gift of emotional stability. He will make it easier for them to rule themselves well and he will inspire the necessary confidence to allow, them, uh, allow himself to rule them also. He won't be easily pu- pulled into participating in emotional outbursts. Rather, he will pull them into his calm, into his controlled emotional state. His presence is like a stabilizing influence rather than a disrupting one. Let me give you an example. How often, when someone raises their voice at us, do we match their tone? and even try to exceed it with a louder voice, I'm stronger than you! Or how often if our wife or a child is anxious about something, and feels like a particular course of action is the only way to alleviate that fear, do we simply go along with it, we take that course, because in the moment we feel that it is the only way to restore control of the situation. Mel mentioned to me last week the analogy that she saw of How many churches are in fact led by the elders' wives? This is a great example of this. Who is in charge in that kind of emotional interaction? Who is the emotional leader? It is the person whose emotions we are picking up and intensifying and following. We are being tossed to and fro rather than being the rock against which the waves can break. The man who cannot command his emotions will be commanded by and through them, which means that his house will be controlled by the tossing waves of whoever has the dominant emotions. So brothers, let us spend time cultivating the kind of command presence that we see in our Lord Jesus, being sober-minded, peaceful, temperate. This is very difficult, but it is necessary it is a slow process and a humbling one, but one that is made much easier by an awareness of its importance and a vigilance in assessing our behavior against the ideal, especially when we must manage conflicts or crises. I don't have a magic bullet for you in cultivating this mindset. I hope that everything I've said so far has been of some practical use for you, but I do have one final exhortation by way of application to close us. If you would be a quiet man, a man of cool spirit, unbothered by emotional storms, you must be a man in communication with God. You must be listening to him, and you must be speaking to him. See how God charges Joshua as he's about to take command of God's people. He says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt ruminate thereon day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not affrighted. Neither be thou dismayed. For Yahweh thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Wherever you go, God is with you. What is our response to this fact, knowing that God is with us wherever we go? Well, Paul instructs us, rejoice in the Lord always, in him. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your forbearance be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. In nothing be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Time fails me to delve into all the connections here, but let me call your attention to a couple of them. We should be forbearing, Paul says, that is, reasonable, gentle, temperate, because the Lord is at hand. Loud men are anxious men, but we have no need to be anxious because we can take every request to God. Therefore, we shall have peace instead. Peaceful and still hearts are confident, commanding hearts. Paul is, in essence, telling us the same thing that one of my very favorite hymns says, Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. So start with the word and with prayer. It is the means by which God has ordained for a man to cultivate the peace which surpasses all understanding. And, ladies, the same applies to you. It is the way that we bring calm to the storms of our hearts and rule our spirits that we may rule others well. Brothers, rule through your way of life. Be a presence that inspires and helps to regulate others towards self-rule. Do it by grounding your own life on the rock of God's word and bringing every emotional storm to him for calming in prayer.